Welcome to Watch This Space, the podcast about future of work. Every month we bring you insider perspectives on how digital transformation, emerging tech, and generational change are shaping the future of work. We are two analog guys finding the groove for all of this in today's digital world. I'm John Arnold, and these trends are my focus as an independent technology analyst in my company, J. Arnold and Associates. And I'm Chris Fine. I'm a consultant and strategist specializing in workplace technology, IoT, and security. My company is Integrative Technologies. Hi, John. Welcome to another month. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah. Hi again, Chris. And uh, good to be back. And uh, we are glad to have our listeners out there. Uh, I can tell you that our stats are trending in a good direction in terms of not just uh, you know number of downloads and you know exposure that the uh, podcasts are getting, Chris, but also we're getting some pretty good um, you know outside of North America listenership now, and we're also uh, you know the podcast platforms are starting to kind of saturate not saturate but seed the market a bit more. So we're seeing more take up from you know or certainly Amazon uh, and uh, Google. Uh, on the platforms. And uh, also, um, I believe it's, uh, is it Podcaster? There's a couple of the platforms, anyways, that are starting to pop up on the list of sources. Uh, that I, And I don't use a lot of these, so it's all kind of new to me, but we're getting more and more of them. So I think it's a good sign that we're starting to kind of develop a, a home in this giant universe of podcast uh, productions. Well, that's all good to hear, John. I, we certainly appreciate our listeners. We appreciate the feedback and we appreciate the opportunity to do this every month and have a few people listen to it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm always pleasantly surprised because when I go and we'll talk about the IT Expo Future of Work show I was just at in Florida, but I um, because we're just getting back into shows, you run into people you haven't seen in a couple of years. And I'm always surprised by people who run into me who I haven't seen and they say, Hey, I really, you know, I love your newsletter. I love your podcast. And I, I, I sometimes I think I underestimate kind of the reach that podcasts have because most people I know are pretty steady consumers of podcasts, which is great to hear. That is really good. And you don't, unless you study your stats, you really don't know. Um, sometimes you feel a little bit like uh, they used to say about radio people alone in a room with a million people. Sometimes it's like you don't really know if it's a million or one out there, but it's it's great to hear. Thanks for the update. Yeah, good, good, and uh, yeah, more, more, more to come. Let's just say so. Um, yeah, so every month there's new stuff to talk about. That's why we do it, right? Um, and this time around, uh, it's going to be very in the moment. So uh, I'm just back now from. The, I mentioned Future of Work Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So I'm just literally, you know, two or three days removed from finishing up that event. And here we are doing the podcast. So it's very fresh. So this is under the banner of the IT Expo, which is run by TMC, Technology Marketing Corp. Um, they've been in the game. Well, they've been actually around for this is their 50th year anniversary. And uh, which is great to see that, um, you know, they started out being publishers, as a lot of these companies did, and then they moved into events and they've been running the IT Expo now, I think, for over 30 years. So it's one of the longest 
running shows in this space and it's got a very good niche and within that show it's kind of like a big tent event um they have what we call sub events and there's more specialized shows so future of work expo is my event that i run under the it expo banner and the, the door the store the room next door to mine they were running the blockchain event and then down the hall there was the iot event and i think there was a wi-fi uh, event and an MSP event. So, you know, they reach a pretty broad audience. And um, this was probably their best show ever, Chris, in terms of attendance, you know, the size of the show floor, the traffic on the show floor, the crowds in the rooms. And it's just another sign, I think, of, you know, events coming back to life and people just wanting to be, you know, around other people again. It was great to see. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I, I guess that's in line with what I've seen out there, although I haven't been doing as much traveling, but what you see in the feedback from people, it's, it's really two or three years of pent up demand, right? That it's not just everybody's glad to get out there again, which of course is true, but it's uh, when you think about the evolution of, a, of an industry or a profession, these get togethers are pretty important every year. And uh, we've gone a long time without them, right? So it, it, there's, I heard somebody say that about one of the conferences recently, uh, the RSA, just kind of hear it broadly, that people are not only glad to get back, but there's a lot of unfinished business over two or three years, even with all the Zooming, right? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. And you get so used to the virtual stuff. And it's easy to forget that, you know, there was a time when you know nothing compared nothing compared to the idea of meeting in person, right? There were no practical alternatives, but now it's like, oh well, I don't have to go to a show, right? I don't need to really travel. Okay, I suppose that's true, but uh, there's just no substitute for the the energy, you know, and just the smiles you see on people's faces, and you know the eye contact, all that stuff that really just tells you people are happy to be in the same place and, and no doubt on the show floor, you know, there people are there to do deals. There's no doubt about it and that's fine. And um, the show does what it's supposed to do, right? It showcases the, the you know, the big vendors and, and, and then our event. And the thing I'll preface about future of work event, and we maybe touched on this before, Chris, is the idea that we had a lot of the kind of, you know, usual suspects, right? We, we had a lot of the big name vendors who you know in this space, you know, Mitel, Cisco, Genesis, 5.9, 8x8, Vonage, you know, all the, a lot of the familiar names who do been doing this stuff a long time. After all, this is a communications technology crowd. But at the same time, I made a point of including, you know, other voices from smaller companies and, and, and vendors in kind of adjacent spaces to what we look at in the UC and collaboration world that really kind of broaden the pool for what hybrid work entails. That, you know, it's very easy, and that's this is kind of the theme of the event, it's very easy to frame workplace challenges through a technology lens, um, but that's only part of it. And that was one of the messages I kept reinforcing over and over again, that. I don't care how good your technology or your UC platform is or your contact center platform is, you know, it's, it's not going to solve all your hybrid work challenges for sure. Agreed. And as we often say, it's, it's a sociological phenomenon as, as well as a technical phenomenon. And it's also an economic phenomenon because 
the nature of what work accomplishes and how you accomplish it is changing. It's not just, it's all of the above. So it sounds like a fascinating program to mix it all together. So, uh, so what did, what did you find out? I mean, let's, let's hear more about it. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of research that's being done in this environment, right. To under, try to understand it. Our opening session was, was basically showcasing uh, a speaker named Andrew Mawson, who actually flew here from the UK to do this. And he is with a company called Advanced Workplace Associates. And it's one of these kind of, you know, strategy firms. And they had done some extensive research about kind of the challenges around supporting uh, hybrid work. And his stuff was very, uh, you know, it, it sounded almost kind of very ethereal, very kind of almost abstract. But what he was getting at was this idea that he, he boiled the research down on what he called six kind of success factors for hybrid work. And it was really all about, as you said, sociological stuff, Chris. It was all about things like team dynamics. And a lot of it was about trust. Um, and this was maybe the most common theme through the whole thing. So if you're going to have like what he calls things like social cohesion, information sharing, you know, a common vision for everybody. These are all, you know, human to human things that technology doesn't really, it might play a secondary role. I mean, this is all about culture, right? And, and, and that whole sense of if we're an organization that has a common goal, common customer base that we all have to support, you've got to have these factors in place. And most of it really did boil down to trust as kind of the kind of the glue that makes it all work. So, you know, there's human trust and there's technology trust, right? Two very different things. And when they can work to get, when you have high levels for both, then I think you have the ingredients to have a very effective, you know, workplace, whether it's home or office based, right? So now that hybrid model starts uh, to me to become a lot more kind of viable when you work on these factors, as opposed to let's just get the best technology and the most advanced AI applications, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's an interesting dilemma because, you know, I, I, sometimes I think that there's all this, and it's usually on the management level kind of view that all the, all the physical interaction matters, which, you know, as analog guys, I think you and I believe it does. And yet, a lot of them, you know, people who are kind of saying, oh, well, it's all, it's great to get together, the culture. Their companies have profited greatly over the years by driving more and more things virtual, shopping, commerce, right? Ordering food, anything else you might want to name, you know, and now it's like, well, you should come together for this. It's just, it's going to be interesting to hear how, see how it plays out, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, the flip side of Andrew traveling across the ocean to be with us, we had a keynote speaker, her name was Barbara Steele from EY, Ernst & Young, presenting like another study that they had done uh, re regarding this whole idea of, you know, how do you balance remote work and getting people back to the office? And unlike Andrew, she just said, all I had to do was walk across the bridge. So her, her office must have been around the corner from where the convention center was. So she had a very short commute, but her study was very good as well. And 
it really kind of highlighted the gaps in perceptions between what management thinks of the problems and what employee thinks of the problems. So, you know, that's a big part of the disconnect about what hybrid work means. And just like Andrew talked a lot about trust being important, her thing was a lot, a lot of it was about the finding, showing the importance of having flexible work conditions, right? And, and options for doing things. So that was really important, but they, you know, it was really good to see data showing some, you know, kind of disconnects that employees feel that there's really still a lot of top-down driving things, whereas uh, management thinks that, you know, they tend to be doing a better job than they really are. So it was good to see numbers, you know, highlighting that. And she just gave us, you know, she only spoke for half an hour. So just a few things there. But the idea that through the pandemic and stuff, they ask questions about, you know, do you feel our culture is getting better, stronger, that kind of thing. And again, you know, it's it's more what management thinks they're doing all the right things, but employees are not really on the same page about that. So it, it, it's, it, you know, it's typical like in, in customer service, it's like what 80% of companies think they're doing a good job serving their customers, but only 20% of customers would say the same thing, that kind of thing. So that, that, that you know, that kind of imbalance really comes out in the numbers. So I thought it was great to have some empirical evidence there to kind of show a foundation of what, what's really happening. You happen to remember any any numbers that you felt were particularly interesting? Well, here's a good one. So the biggest gap in perceptions was this variable about culture is improving. So in other words, you know, the improvements in culture are more, you know, more perceived than real. But, um, you know, there was a real swing in terms of what management felt about how it was going versus what what um, employees feel. So again, that's one of those intangibles if you don't have it on the same page. And, and another example would be this idea about is, are people actually any more productive, right? And again, this is one that kind of goes the other way that the employers, the management feel that employees are not as productive as they were before, yet employees think they're just as productive as before. So, you know, again, I guess it depends what your, you know, what, what your interests are, but obviously employees who like working remotely are going to do everything they can to make sure that they feel that there's no drop off in productivity. Otherwise it's not going to continue. Well, that's, so, that, yeah. that's a fascinating one before you go further, right? Because you would think, I mean, maybe it's a matter of time, but before they get enough data, but one would think that productivity is actually relatively measurable, right? And so one would think that it wouldn't be such a subjective view, like the data would show one side or the other, you know, at least because especially when you think about the fact that a lot of work is measurable, you know, and, and it's not that companies don't measure it. You know, you you're either you measurable in some kind of satisfaction review slash you know appraisal of work or measured in output levels you know of of tasks that you have to do and it's it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that those views are different and then what is the data actually going to show right yeah I I still think productivity is is not measured very effectively. Um, I, I don't really, I, I don't think we've come up with the magic kind of variables that 
I mean, you can measure it in terms of maybe operational. Like one of the things that came up a lot was talking about efficiency versus effectiveness, right? So you can be very productive in terms of maybe utilizing, you know, resources, right? IT, uh, bandwidth and applications and all the things, you know, to show that you're using the tools the company is giving you. But on the other hand, you know, are you making better decisions? You know, maybe you're making maybe you're having fewer meetings or faster meetings, but I'm not sure how you translate that into productivity in terms of things that are, I don't know, that are measurable. Um, well, the logical next question would be, why do they think that? And, and if, let's just say if either side was right, what are the implications or if it's somewhere in the middle, right? So like, mm -hmm. if you think people were more productive in the office, then there should be some tangible reason why. And yet, if you think about the actual physical layout and you think about what people might spend their day doing, you'd have to argue that there was some big importance in informal physical interactions with people who are actually pretty close to you versus picking up the phone and calling somebody or, you know, conferencing with somebody or whatever else people may be doing because otherwise what's different from home, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I might have the answers for you on that one, Chris. So um, we only, but I don't have it today. So Barbara okay. only had a handful of slides and highlights she could share. But what I've talked to her about since is that, you know, post this conference, um, uh, like I could get a deeper look at the, research she has and i told her i think what would be good if i maybe did it i interviewed her and did a little bit of a write-up specifically about that study just to maybe you know look a little deeper into some of those ideas so stay tuned on that one folks or in other words watch this space yeah yeah exactly so, exactly. so what else went on what what uh... yeah well we covered a lot of ground so the first two days were about office workplace issues around hybrid work and the Thursday was focused on mostly contact center and uh, supporting remote agents because they're part of the workforce too. So we looked at some of the issues there. How do you deliver good customer experience, you know, to customers in a hybrid work setting? So we looked at quite a bit of that. And also the morning of the Thursday on the show floor, uh, we had, I think five or six of our sponsors did um, demos on the floor. So that was a chance for people to get a hands-on experience of what some of these future work applications are looking like. So I, I do want to give a quick shout out to two helpers I had. So colleagues, Tom Brennan and Phil Edholm were, you know, fellow analysts. And they, I helped out, uh, Tom moderated two sessions, one on cybersecurity and one on ARVR. And Phil did a session on frontline. So they were a big help to help me get through the uh, all of these uh, sessions and uh, we just uh, I think one of the big takeaways is is the range of companies we had so I mentioned earlier you know it's not just about the technology so we had a lot of people kind of giving kind of a more of an AR AR an HR perspective on this in all the issues of how do you engage people when they're working from home what are the right ways to hire people and they started talking a lot about like using AI you know it's part of the um, hiring is part of the process of, you know, recruiting people. So like, you know, the volume of applications companies get, you know, humans can't process them. So 
you know, everything begets something else, right? So there's all kinds of services that help people write autumn, you know, optimize the resumes to get picked up by the AI engines that only, you know, search for certain keywords or attributes that helps whittle down the pile in a manageable way. So it's really interesting. It just shows you though, Chris, I think how the need to automate has permeated so many things now that we're in this digital world that's defining future of work. You know, there's just so much more data. And that, that was another thing that came out too, is like, this is why AI, AI is so important because it's built for this exact kind of need, right? Where, where everything is measurable now. Now, what do you do with it, right? Yeah. So what's a good, what's a good example of how AI, for example, would be applied in the contact center space? Like what are, what's one of the more interesting claims that the vendors are doing or making? Yeah, well, I think there it's this idea of automating self-service, right? To, in other words, take some of the pressure off of the agents um, to not have to handle, you know, routine kind of calls, right? Your, what are your hours of operation? How do I return a product? You know, that fix a billing problem. There's a lot of that. So AI, of course, is getting better and better handling these kind of things. And it's not just because you, you want to deflect stuff away from the agents because it's just too much volume. It's also because the, as this hybrid work that, you know, we had a session on the great resignation, you know, the agent, you know, contact center space has been particularly hard hit by a loss of people leaving the space because it's high pressure work. It's not very rewarding work. So we talked a lot about how do we, what do we have to do to make it be cool to be an agent in a contact center? Because it's one of those jobs no one really wants to do, or if they do it only for the shortest time possible. And I kept thinking, I mentioned this in this one of the sessions, that Roseanne Barskit from Saturday Night Live about, you know, 30 years ago when she plays the contact center agent. And it's just, it's so classic, but it just captures that mentality of, you know, these people do not want to be there. And so, you know, the attrition is so high. And so, you know, it's, it's, it comes down to, you know, um, we talk a lot about empathy, you know, how do you give empathetic service? But also, how do you empathize with the needs of the contact center agent? How do you, you know, you got to give them the tools so they can actually do a good job. And they've always kind of been like the last in line, right, for getting consideration for these things. But really, it's clear that they, you know, they got to be further up in the priority list here. So that was a big, big focus of, you know, how do you, you can't just throw more money at them. You, you've got to attract them. you got to keep them. you got to make their work feel more meaningful and valued. So that's an ongoing challenge and, you know, tech has some role to play, but at the same time, because you were asking about AI, um, at the same time, you don't want to position it as a job replacement thing for them as well, because labor is the biggest cost factor in a contact center. So if AI is about automation and reducing labor costs, it, they become the obvious target for that. So that's, that's one of those, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't thing because you need the AI for them to do a better job, but you don't want to position it as something that's going to be a threat to their employment. I've always felt that if if it were a goal that, and you know, we've talked a lot about our respective uh, skepticisms about AI, whether it ends up being good or bad, but I've always observed that in theory, if you had, if you used AI to empower the agent, 
as opposed to try to get rid of the agent, that that could be a good thing. So maybe that's where it's going. Because a lot of frustration that, and, you know, I, I ho- hopefully, I mean, I, I think we feel this way. Hopefully the listeners can kind of envision your interaction with customer service. And a lot of times, one of the reasons you get frustrated is that basically the agent has very little power to help you. Right. And like mm-hmm. when you have a customer service interaction where it's really helpful to you, and there are some companies that are like that, where, where they just have done whatever and magic it is, or they're in a business where it's doable to, to help you. It's a very positive interaction for both sides. But my feeling is that, especially like in tech help, where, um, you, you know, the, the, the agent's kind of hapless when they get your call a lot of the time, you know, because how do they know what the heck's going on, you know? And mm-hmm. um, they're not empowered with great tools to help them help you. And yeah. that's very, you know, there's nothing, there's few things that are more frustrating than getting caught in the pliers between your customers who have legitimate complaints and they're getting mad because you can't help them and systems and and um, policies or whatever it is that don't allow you to do your job optimally. And I've always felt that in, in customer service, that's a, that's something where you actually could apply some of this technology. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yep. Related to that. And again, on the AI theme, this just shows you kind of how, how many lenses there are to this future of work hybrid model thing. Cause I don't even know what to call it anymore. But the, uh, we had a speaker from the, the government. He's, his name was Keith Sonderling, and he's the commissioner of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC. Boy, government guys use a lot of acronyms, as we know. <laughs> but he gave a really interesting talk about, you know, D- this whole DEI thing, diversity, equity, inclusion. That was a recurring theme uh, in the, you know, in the workspace themed uh, sessions about how do we support a more diverse workforce. And he brought up the issues about, you know, their job is to ensure that there are fair hiring practices in the workplace. So it's interesting when you start bringing policy into the mix here, and it's very important. It really applies to how do how do you hold big companies accountable to hiring the right people? When I talked earlier about using AI to vet um, you know, to shortlist all the thousands of resumes people, you know, collect. Well, it came up talking a little bit about how AI itself has a lot of, can have a lot of built-in bias, depending on who's doing the programming and training it, right? So you've got to make sure that you can be as, as you know, objective as possible when you're dealing with people who have whatever, disabilities, different cultures, different languages, and to make sure that they all have you know, fair opportunities for, for jobs. So I, I thought that was really good because again, we almost take it for granted that a lot of these technologies are fairly unregulated, right? But, you know, the government is listening. The government is watching. I don't know how much teeth they actually have to do this, but the fact that we had a guy speaking from the federal government just tells you this is an important issue for them. And uh, I think it was good to have that in the mix. Well, it had to have been interesting to get that perspective, but especially in a shortage of high of, uh, you know, a, a drought of, of hiring, um, of, of finding good candidates. I, 
I got to believe it's in everybody's best interest to try to look as look as broadly as you can for people who are going to do a good job. You know, yeah. this and this is one of the things with remote work, if you just think geographically, which is a very simple kind of demographic where, you know, if you can recruit anybody from anywhere and it doesn't kind of matter, you have a much bigger pool. But but yes, in other in other all those other criteria as well. Right. You don't the more you can you can tap into a good workforce, the better and it better for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. We did talk quite a bit about kind of the balance of power shifting right from the employer to the employee because, you know, they want flexible work, et cetera, et cetera. All of which is very true. But at the same time, you know, the workforce trending younger. We're in this digital economy now. So I mentioned earlier, I think about frontline and a lot of focus as well on workers who are on an hourly wage. So this is you know, not the knowledge workers. And Chris, you know, you're always good to point out that we're not speaking about the whole workforce. And it was really good to hear a lot more attention paid to that end of it because they're a big part. And you know, when you start talking about balance of power, and I mentioned in one of the sessions, you know, you look at what um, you know uh, attempts to unionize like an Amazon have not been very effective. And you also have, you know, you know, the Elon Musks of the world dictating you come back to the office or you're considered resigned. Um, you start to wonder, well, okay, maybe the balance of power hasn't shifted all that much. And, and I don't know quite which way the wind blows on that one, but workers, as we know, don't really have a lot of protection unless you're in those glorified, you know, high value, high end knowledge worker jobs. But that's not the majority of the workforce, right? Well, depending on what happens with the economy, one might argue you're pretty disposable, even in what were considered to be very safe jobs, too. Um, I, I agree with you. This is an interesting thing that I think about um, a lot about, is there really a generational change or is it just we've been in a period of time where for various reasons, including what had been a relatively you know, robust economy, that the workers have had some power because they've had freedom based on competition for their skills. I guess through most of, you know, our, our careers and our lives span a very distinct era in history, which is arguably rapidly changing. During most of my career, the whether workers had power or not, often, and I think somewhat unfortunately so, just depended on whether the economy was robust or not. But it's going to be interesting to see if there are enough generational, demographic, technological, and other changes to to really to really change that balance for a prolonged period of time. You know, not just an economic cycle. But it sounds like there probably may be enough change of thought to to really make it change, and, and perhaps have the workers have a bit more power. Right? Yeah, I, I sure hope so. And uh, you know, that, that's I think a good segue to our. To our outro, Chris, that um, because of the pandemic, the show was supposed to be in February. And then it got pushed out to June because I couldn't do in person back then. Um, but the February date is the traditional annual date for the event. So the next future work will be, I think, second week in February. Same place, Fort Lauderdale, as far as I know. But it's come, it won't be that far out. But it will be far out enough to see if, as you said, the state of our economy right now, we might be 
going headlong into a recession. The 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 you know the, the economic factors don't really look very promising at the moment. So it'll be interesting, like you say, if we're into a down market like that, which this current crop of workers hasn't really experienced before. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what that balance of power. And I, I'm all, you're already getting me to think about, oh, topics for the next event. It'll be that, right? Has that balance of power really changed? And do economic conditions kind of, you know, kind of trump everything else? Doesn't matter how good your technology is, but if economy is tanking and people can't pay the bills, they'll take whatever they can get. So that'll be interesting to see. Agreed, agreed. But it's going to be particularly interesting to see, given the experience of the pandemic and how successful people were with more flexibility of work. And the fact that the technology basically and other means by which people have been able to function this way have established and mainstreamed themselves so much that uh, it's kind of, I don't know if they argue meant of asserting power is going to be quite as uh, compelling as it used to be mm-hmm. you know because it yeah. used to be it used to be you know before the technology and you and i both have been involved in various efforts to promote flexible work for a very long time and you know for a very long time very given where the technology was and given what uh, kind of a relative underinvestment that many organizations had done in flex work until the pandemic it was very, uh, it was easier, let's say, for management in a downturn to say, well, you know what, it, you've kind of had a vacation, we've been indulgent, mm-hmm. let you work at home more, take your work home, all this kind of stuff, use your laptop. But now, you know, we, we think we have to buckle down, etc. But in the in the times when that happened, the last few economic cycles, the technology was not where it was, and you did not have a generation that was your most desirable workers, I, you know, from a lot from people's perspective, your influx of new workers uh, was not as tech savvy. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, th- and this is a pretty broad, and yes, we always talk about our, we always make a point that we're not talking about all types of workers, but for an awful lot of types of workers who used to have, would have had no choice to be remote. You've got remote technology, you've got remote terminals, you've got remote devices, you've got all of these ways that they can function remotely too, unless they physically have to put hands on to something. And um, it's it's going to be an interesting saga to play out, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, another wild card could be another COVID variant that just, you know, puts us all back into our homes again. Right for good, almost. You know, so we don't even know how that's going to. Yeah. Well, we can't we, we can't go that far outside of our area of expertise. You know. Yeah, we can't control that one. No. <laughs> All right, that's uh, that takes us to time, folks. So we are uh, going to wrap up. So we'd like to thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed our podcast, and want you to continue with us as we explore the future of work here on Watch This Space. Um, you can access all of our episodes at www.watchthisspace.tech or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And of course, if you like it, please leave us a review, a rating. If you have suggestions for future topics you'd like Chris and I to talk about, we were not hard to find. So with that, I'm John Arnold. And I'm Chris Fine. John, we didn't mention it explicitly, but I guess there will be follow-up press coverage and people should, our listeners could look for it. 
on on your future work event. Congratulations. It sounds like a big success. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll be back again next month with another episode of Watch This Space.